Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliadi, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 11, An End-Time Sodom and Gomorrah. Welcome, everybody. Uh, did you know there's going to be an end-time Sodom and Gomorrah destruction? Isaiah starts off his book, at, which we'll see, addressing God's people at Sodom and Gomorrah, whom we are. So there's a lot of food for thought there. From Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 10, establishing the principle that all things that Isaiah spoke have been and shall be, as Jesus teaches in 3 Nephi 23, it's a very Jewish idea. The thing that has been it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which we may say, see, this is new? It has already been of old times before us. So I was taught that in rabbinic school. The rabbi didn't have the proof. It was just a tradition among Jews. But I found the literary proof in the book of Isaiah in the uh, seven-part structure. It's in my book, The Literary Analysis, Literary Message of Isaiah. It's also in my book, Isaiah Decoded, for a layman's rendition of it. So you can read Isaiah, therefore, as an end-time scenario and using history as an allegory of the end-time. That's in a nutshell. Third Nephi 23, this is where Jesus says it, Behold, I say unto you that you ought to search these things. And that's what most of us fall short of, is the searching idea. It's more than reading or studying. A commandment I give you that you search these things, these words, diligently, for greater the words of Isaiah. For surely he spake as touching all things concerning my people, which are the house of Israel. Therefore it must needs be that he must also speak out to the Gentiles, and all things he spake have been and shall be. That's the key right there, even according to the words which he spake. They have been in his day, they shall be in the end time. Those are the two distinct scenarios which prophecies fulfill. Why the Gentiles? Because of Israel's interaction with the Gentiles. And we see that in the allegory of the olive tree, how the wild branches are grafted in for a time, and then the natural branches, in the end, are grafted back into their tree when the Gentiles, by and large, bring forth lots of fruit, but none of it any good, as we've discussed in previous classes. It's also in Romans 11, where Paul looks forward to the house of Israel being regrafted back into its own olive tree, and he warns the Gentiles not to be high-minded, not to think too much of themselves. Isaiah 44, 6-8 through 8. Thus says Jehovah, the King of Israel, Jehovah of hosts, their Redeemer, I was at the first and I am at the last. And there again, you have the dichotomy of ancient times, the Urzeit and the Endzeit, or the end time. And he's everything else in between, but those are the two main scenarios that are alluded to here. Apart from me, there is no God. Who predicts what happens as do I and is the equal of me in appointing a people from of old as types? So the history of the Jews is itself a typology for what happens in the end time. And their interaction with, in history with other nations is the type and shadow as Isaiah selectively uses portions of Israel's history to typify the end time. And the Book of Mormon takes its cue from Isaiah and does the same thing. Foretelling things to come. So the people in their very lives foretell things to come. In the very history that they established and experienced that's now recorded in the scriptures are foretelling what's to come, what's to come in the end time. When the Book of Mormon writers 
wrote the Book of Mormon, they wrote it for our day. They wrote it for their descendants who would be living in that time. So they, again, selectively chose things out of their history that would most typify the end time, which could enlighten their end time descendants of how to deal with those things, because God works the same in history, in the past or in the future. Be not perturbed or shaken. Have I not made it known to you from of old? Did I not foretell it, you being my witnesses? While there is reason to be perturbed or shaken, if you don't know these things, you don't use history to warn you of what's to come. And if you don't learn from history, then history has to repeat itself to people's detriment. 46, 8 through 10. Put yourselves in mind of this, come to your senses, take it to heart, you offenders. Speaking to the Lord's people in the previous verse. Review the prophecies of the events of old. I am God, there is none other. I am divine, nothing resembles me. What is it about the prophecies of old that we need to review? Because they're a lesson for today. I foretell the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done. We see that the end is contained in the beginning. In the beginning, in the history of Israel, there is also the end. It's going to repeat itself. Not in the exact order, but that's why you don't have a chronology in Isaiah. Different sequences of events just pasted together, and that's why we need to search it and connect the dots. I speak and my purposes take effect. I accomplish all my will. You can't change the mind of the Lord to not accomplish what he has said he will. People say, well, if we repent, then it doesn't have to happen. That's true up to a point, but whatever he has spoken will happen at some point. People give the example of Jonah. So the people of Nineveh to whom Jonah went repented, and so it didn't happen in that time, but it happened in the times of Tobit. Some time later in the years of Tobit, it's an apocryphal book. It's actually part of the Catholic canon, the book of Tobit. And Tobit Sr. tells Tobit Jr. that now is the time of the destruction of Nineveh where Jonah's prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Yes, it did not happen in Jonah's time, and it was forestalled because the people repented but who do you see repenting today in sackcloth and ashes as Nineveh did? I don't see much of that evidence. Windows on the Prophecies of Isaiah. That's my newest book that's over there. I mentioned it before. A literary technique Isaiah uses to predict end-time events that resemble ancient events. In fact, Isaiah limits himself to that method of prophesying. In that way, his predictions stay grounded in the Hebrew prophetic tradition and always appear familiar, familiar from the Scriptures. In practice, it means that whatever sets a precedent in the past may qualify as a type or pattern of the future. Upon such types, Isaiah builds his predictions. When he mentions an ancient person or nation by name, for example, that person or nation set a precedent that typifies something in the end time. Look up every name in the book of Isaiah and you'll see something associated with that person where that person or nation set a precedent. We say history repeats itself. But because not everything that happened in the past follows this pattern, Isaiah uses history selectively. He doesn't just willy-nilly accept everything in history, but picks out those things that will most typify the end time, depending on whether he knows something similar is going to occur again. And I might add that where there is no historical event that happens, or no person that, for example, who does everything God's end time servant is going to do, Then Isaiah resorts to imagery from the past, and he says things through allegories and metaphor and predicts things that way. But always he stays within the limits of ancient history.
and ancient culture of the people of Israel and their history. Always he limits himself to that. So he gets creative when there's no actual historical event to say exactly what he wants to say. 1 Kings 14. Now remember, Israel's history is a type and shadow of our day, and this time around we are the covenant people, and these names, therefore, in the book of Isaiah and in history become code names for us. All things that Isaiah speak have been and shall be. The names are not so important, it's how the people are characterized, that's what's important. You'll learn that as you start searching. Judah did evil in the sight of Jehovah, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed above all that their fathers had done. For they also built themselves high places, images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also sodomites in the land who did according to all the abominations of the nations that Jehovah had cast out before the people of Israel. Well, do we have images? I mean, images are everywhere, on television and movies, on gadgets. And Do we have sodomites? Well, they're increasing in numbers by the day and growing ever more aggressive in their insistence that they're normal, so to speak. Deuteronomy, here's the prohibition. There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. These are God's words, not man's. Ezekiel, as I live, said the Lord God, Jehovah, Sodom, your sister, has not done, neither she nor her daughters, as you have done, you or your daughters. Sodom is the other house of Israel, calling it Sodom. Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters, nor did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. So it wasn't just sodomy. It wasn't just that lifestyle that's an abomination. It's also pride and an abundance of everything. People becoming idle and having nothing better to do than just fall into bad habits. Romans 1, 18-32 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. Go figure that. In other words, they twist the truth and they, they manipulate the truth. They wrest the truth of God and they're kind of like two-faced, giving it lip service, but on the other hand, not living according to God's definition of righteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, in other words, they've learned the gospel. For God hath shown it to them. For the invisible things concerning him from the creation of the world have been clearly seen. Spiritual realities are known to them. They've had faith, exercised their faith, and they've had testimonies of it. Being understood by the things that are made, even by his eternal power and Godhead. Because when you live those truths, you see the fruits of it. And the fruits of it are made manifest in our lives, in the flesh, so that they are without excuse. So having known those things, and then they fall away, they have no excuse. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, nor were thankful, like the people of Sodom, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We've talked about the blinding of the mind and the heart through our idolatries. That's a big theme of Isaiah. And of course, when... You follow your vain imaginations and your lusts and so forth. Of course, your heart is going to be darkened in your mind. So you won't even know, perhaps, that you're in that state. You'll be in an altered state spiritually, not realizing what's happened to you. Professing themselves to be wise, nevertheless, 
they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God to an image resembling corruptible man, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Well, just watch television and see plenty of that. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies among themselves. And they were just debasing themselves. That's what Spencer sees in his book. That's what the scriptures are continuously warning us against. People falling into temptation, giving in to their lower selves, and pretty soon they're not what they were once before, and they go through, as Isaiah describes it, a decreation process. Instead of being recreated closer to God's image, they are no longer even what they used to be. Who changed the truth of God into a lie, conveniently, right? Living a lie. And worship and serve the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What creature? Well, yourself, your own flesh, your own faddish friends that are part of your little ideas and lifestyle as you are, as you have. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women changed their natural use into what is against nature. So even when the women start doing this, then things are really bad. Because women are more naturally righteous than men are. And what's the natural use? Well, the natural sexual use. Natural relationships become unnatural. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, doing what is unseemly and receiving in their persons a fitting reward of their evil practices. What would that reward be? Well, it'd be a total demoralization of the body and of the spirit to where they become more bestial than anything. And as they desired not to retain God in their awareness, that's a really important phrase because to always remember Him is to retain Him in your awareness and you create this link with God when you are constantly thinking about Him and not have your thoughts diverted to this and to that and to the other thing continuously. When that becomes a habit, we're always diverted by something then we don't retain God in our awareness and our whole reality morphs into something other than a spiritual reality, more like the reality of Babylon. So God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do things inexpedient. A reprobate mind, namely thinking twisted thoughts and having those regurgitate in you continuously instead of the spiritual thoughts that you could be having. Having input from the demons, the evil spirits rather than input from the angels, who minister the Holy Spirit to you, as we read in section 76, the Doctrine and Covenants. Being filled with every form of unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, malevolence, it gets worse and worse because as you go down this slippery slope, you get fixed into that lifestyle. It takes hold of you, and pretty soon, Satan has you. Being full of envy, murder, that's where it goes in the end, as we saw in the early lectures that we had. The ultimate form of apostasy is satanic cult and murders. Strife, deceit, viciousness, becoming gossipers, backbiters, haters of God. I just say haters, period. Despiteful, proud, boasters, conceivers of evil, disobedient to parents, devoid of understanding, covenant breakers, though they think they are the only ones who understand, of course. Covenant breakers, Covenants that they have made with God or with one another, not keeping their word, without natural affection, unbending, unmerciful, who knowing God's judgment and those who commit such things are worthy of death, not only do those things but have pleasure in those who do them. 
So when things reach that point, you basically got depraved human race. And this is where things went in the past. And this is where Isaiah says they will go again. And also those who are having dreams and visions and near-death experiences in these days are seeing these very things as well. There's a warning in, in, in Visions of Glory, Spencer's book. Genesis 18. This is the actual account of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible. Jehovah said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grievous, I will now go down and see whether they have altogether done according to the cry thereof that has come to me. Well, who's sending up the cries, do you think? Of course, it's the victims of this debauchery, not the people themselves. They're quite happy living that. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from there and went to Sodom. These are the men who are talking with Abraham. There were three of them, and one of them was Jehovah. And these men ate in Abraham's tent. So they had bodies, and one of them was Jehovah. But Abraham still stood before Jehovah, and Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Perhaps there are fifty righteous persons in the city. Will you destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous persons in it? Far be it from you to do after that manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous should be counted as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Who is Abraham counseling here? He's counseling the Lord. And the next chapter, eight, uh, 19. These are the two men that came to Sodom in the evening. And they said to Lot, Have you any others here, your sons-in-law, daughters, sons, daughters, or whoever you have in the city, bring out of here? And we discussed that before, how Lot could be a proxy savior of others if he chose to be. But apparently he did not have any, because he was certainly not as righteous as Abraham. And it says that the Lord remembered Abraham and took Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, which means that Abraham was Lot's proxy savior, and Lot, of course, was his family's proxy savior, or physical deliverer. Because we are going to destroy this place, their clamor has become great before Jehovah, and Jehovah has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went and spoke to his sons-in-law, who betrothed to his daughters, and said, Get up and get out of here. Jehovah will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed like a person who was joking. Now, you imagine this scenario in the end time, and you're going to go and say to your neighbors, come on, the Lord is going to destroy this place like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're going to go into the wilderness. Come on, let's go. And what do you think the response is going to be on the average? You're joking, right? And when morning came, the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take your wife and two daughters who are here, or you will be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold on his hand, and on the hand of his wife, and the hand of his two daughters, Jehovah being merciful to them, and brought him out, and put him beyond the city. So these angels, who are the equivalent of translated beings in the end time, the 144,000 translated beings, basically strong-armed him to get him out of there, because they knew that Lot was a righteous man, and for Abraham's sake, the Lord sent them to save him. And they brought him out, and put him beyond the city. Now, how do you put someone beyond the city? Think they walk there? Well, maybe, but when you read Spencer's book, what happens? Remember, you carry them in your arms and in your shoulders. You basically just go through the portal and you're there. And that's what translated beings can do. They can come and go between the different dimensions. And brought him out and put him beyond the city, beyond Sodom. And when they had brought them out, the man said, one of the men, one of the angels, escape for your life. Don't look back and don't stay in the plane. 
escape to the mountain or you will be consumed. So there's your type. And in Isaiah 2, you have the mountains as a place of refuge. But when you go, you have to be guided by correct directions. The authorities, the, the servants of the Lord, not just go off on your own because you likely will not survive if you do that. Because Jesus said, don't go out there, right? Don't go into the wilderness. He gives warning on the one hand, and on the other, you do go into the wilderness. But when it's the Lord calling you there, not some person who's trying to lead you away. Luke 17. As it was in the days of Noah, this is the Lord speaking, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Son of Man being Christ, man being the Father, exalted man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Everything looked normal right up until that day. So imagine when there was a call comes out, from the prophet to leave, to go out of Babylon in the exodus that Isaiah predicts, and maybe the next day or very soon thereafter, a few days later, all hell breaks loose, and suddenly the whole world has changed, just like it did then. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone in heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Think it could happen in our day? I mean, don't you see times changing? There's something afoot, right? The world is not what it was even ten years ago. And it's changing by the day. Genesis 19. Back to the historical account of Sodom. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then Jehovah rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Jehovah out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. I think I've mentioned to you when you take a tour of Israel and tour guides, you go down to the Arabah there near Masada where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah used to be by the Dead Sea. And they'll say, you know, there's this huge thing. That's Lot's wife. Like I said, she must have been a big woman. <laughs> but, you know, these tour guides, they have their favorite little jokes. Um, a lot of it is playing jokes on the people, pilgrims who come, the tourists. So Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before Jehovah, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, a, the smoke of that country arose like the smoke of a furnace. Well, what do you think it looks like after a nuclear attack? You think it could resemble that? And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. There it is. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. So he did it for Abraham's sake. He delivered Lot. But he delivered Lot's daughters for Lot's sake. That's the role of proxy saver that every head of a family has. But you can go higher and be a proxy saver of others besides your own families. And that's what the 144,000 do. That's what kings and priests, that's the role of a king and a priest. Like Nephi, of whom Jacob said, unto whom you look as a king and a protector. A king is the protector, he's a proxy savior for the protection of those to whom he ministers. And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him until the danger was past, until he found whatever the Lord had prepared for him then. And you see how hard it is for a woman to leave her comforts home, everything nice that's, that she's known for years, and suddenly she can't conceive that suddenly everything's going to change? Surely not. Solomon had been there for centuries. 
why would everything change overnight? Well, because the Lord and Lot understood, he, he recognized the angels for who they were, whereas they may have appeared to others simply as men, because they came as men. And in Spencer's book, Visions of Glory, you see that they can assume any kind of persona that they want while they're ministering to somebody. This is from Sarah Monet's book, There Is No Depth. I thought she was going to be here this evening. Oh, she's on, online. Okay, great. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Recording you now. <laughs> Looking at the Middle East, this is her near-death experience when she was clinically dead as a result of diabetes. Looking at the Middle East, I watched as a missile flew from Libya and hit Israel. The mushroom cloud that resulted from the blast was visible, and I knew that the missile contained a nuclear bomb. Well, you know, she had this, what, it was published back in 1978 or something? I forget, she could probably tell us, but back in the 70s, the late 70s, before this whole configuration that exists now in the Middle East, with Iran being a nuclear power, practically, and Libya being a terrorist area in cahoots with Iran, and now the Iranians have intercontinental missiles. So all of this is now plausible, whereas in Sarah's time, when she had that experience, it didn't even look like that. 79, there you go. And she stuck her neck out publishing this, because who would have thought that now everything is lined up? I was aware that those responsible for the missile were Iranians, but the missile had been hidden and fired from the, within the borders of Libya. Almost immediately, other missiles began flying from one country to another, quickly spreading war around the world. I, also, I think that was my typo. I also saw that many nuclear explosions did not come from missiles, but from bombs of some kind on the ground. So from sabotage, bringing you know, suitcase bombs or trucks with bombs in them into certain areas and, and then detonating them at a given signal. This is Spencer in Visions of Glory. Atomic weapons have been deployed to take out major defense installations around the nation and in Utah. There had been a first strike against the United States, and it came without provocation. This is back to Sarah, Sarah Monet. There is no death, her book. I became aware of missiles being launched and hitting United States cities. I watched as mushroom clouds started forming over many areas of the states. Some of the clouds came from missiles that I knew were fired from Russia, and others were not from missiles at all, but from bombs that were already within the country. These latter bombs had been hidden in trucks and cars and were driven to certain locations and then detonated. I specifically saw Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and New York City hit with bombs. Of course, there are other cities that others have seen, but these are the ones she saw, at least the ones she remembers. New York City was hit with a missile, but I think Los Angeles was hit by at least one truck bomb, if not several, because I did not see any missile. I also saw a small mushroom cloud north of Salt Lake City without the aid of a missile. Well, Spencer gives more clarity on that because he talks about these implanted missiles taking out military installations. And we have one north of Salt Lake City, don't we? In the darkness, I also saw fireballs falling from the sky. This took place after the mushroom clouds. The balls that fell from the sky were of different sizes, most being the size of golf balls, and were very hot. Well, one could probably go right through you if one hits you. There were millions of them. As they fell from the sky, they left streaks of flame and smoke behind them. Everything they touched started on fire. People, buildings, trees and grass, everything burned. Would you call that a Sodom and Gomorrah type of destruction? How more could it resemble, I would say? Second Peter 2. I think we need to give a little more attention to Peter. Some of his writings are profound. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes... 
God damned them by overthrow oh he swore God damned them by overthrowing them hence making an example of them to those who live wickedly and he delivered the just man Lot who was vexed by the filthy conversation of the ungodly for that righteous man dwelling among them seeing and hearing was roiled in his righteous soul day after day by their lawless acts it says it all doesn't it the Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations and how to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. Those who go after the flesh in their defining lusts and those who despise self-discipline. And there you have it, brothers and sisters. What's it all about? Self-discipline. When you entertain thoughts and let them take hold of you and don't thwart them from entering into your heart and mind, you give them license, then, of course, it keeps on going. Anybody could go into that. It's not something you are. It's something you become by your thoughts, letting those things take you over. Presumptuous as they are and self-willed, unafraid to speak evil of nobleness. Of course, because they can't see anybody in a higher plane than themselves because of their self-righteousness. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might dare bring no railing accusation against them before the Lord. Oops, maybe I've been bringing a railing accusation against them just now. But notice the difference between those evil souls who become evil and are railing against what is good and true and right and against God's elect and against God himself. And the angels dare not even rail against them in return. Same thing in the Book of Mormon where you have the humble followers of Christ who return not railing for railing. What's railing? Hmm? Somebody, you know, basically letting you have it, right? Calling you all kinds of names and condemning you. Yeah. But such as these, like carnal brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speaking evil of things they don't understand, shall utterly perish in their corruption, receiving the reward of their unrighteousness like those who counted a pleasure to brawl for the day. Yeah, let's go out on the town and do some brawling. You know, let's just have a great time and see what chaos we can make. A stain are they and blemishes, sporting themselves in their deceitfulness, while they feast among you, their eyes full of adultery, unable to cease sinning, beguiling unstable souls, their hearts preoccupied with covetous acts, accursed progeny are they. I mean, I would say, yeah, that is damnation, isn't it? That is. And that's where it's going. We see it before our eyes today. It's just gotten started, but we'll see it going there more and more. From Isaiah 3. Jerusalem will falter and Judea fall. Now remember, these are code names for God's people in the end time now. Because all that has been shall be. And today we are it. Not the Jews, not the Nephites, not the Lamanites, not the Jaredites. It's us. Because their tongue and their actions are contrary to Jehovah and affront to his glory before his very eyes. The look on their faces betrays them. They flaunt their sin like Sodom. They cannot hide it. They used to hide it, right? But now it's out in the open. What do you call that? Um... Hmm? Coming out. <laughs> yeah. Woe to their souls. That's a covenant curse. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Isaiah 1 7 through 24. Your land is ruined, your cities burned with fire, your native soil is devoured by aliens in your presence. This is describing the end time now. Laid waste that is taken over by foreigners. And notice who is doing it is the armies of the enemy that are doing it. The daughter of Zion is left. Now, before you jump to conclusions who the daughter of Zion is, it's the elect of God, only the elect, those who have made sure they can election by Isaiah's definition. In other words, a celestial category of people, not just members of the church. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, 
the hut in a melon field, a city under siege, as it was in King Hezekiah's day, when the Assyrians besieged Jerusalem and 185,000 men surrounded Jerusalem. Thank you for turning off your cell phone. But that's part of the test, because those people in Hezekiah's day passed the test. Hezekiah passed the test. He kept God's law. The people kept Hezekiah's law, as we discussed in a previous lecture. And so God was under covenant obligation to deliver both him and his people under the protection clause of the Davidic covenant. Had not Jehovah of hosts, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah in Hebrew, as I mentioned last time, left us a few survivors, we should have been as Sodom or become like Gomorrah. So think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the multitude that lived there compared to Lot and his two daughters who came out. There you have an accurate estimate of the proportions of those who will survive this destruction. Hear the word of Jehovah, you leaders of Sodom. Give heed to the law of God, you people of Gomorrah. Talking to us, to his own people, his covenant people. Because with that kind of allusion to Sodom and Gomorrah also comes what happened to Sodom. You can't use those names and say, well, it's not going to happen, even though I'm calling you that. If he's calling you that, that's going to happen. A Sodom and Gomorrah destruction. For what purpose are your abundant sacrifices to me? I've had my fill of offerings of rams and fat of fat of beasts, the blood of bulls and sheep and he goats that do not want. Well, those sacrifices were animal sacrifices anciently, but what sacrifices do we make in the temple today? Ourselves. We go there to serve as proxy saviors. So he's speaking to a temple-going people here, calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. What kind of paradox is that? But as he says, when you come to see me, who requires of you to trample my courts so? He's asking the question in verse 11, for what purpose are your sacrifices? He answers in verse 12, that's at the temple, when you come to see me, the purpose of temple going, in other words, is to be received into the presence of the Lord, to see the Lord, to make sure you're calling election. But what's going on instead? Well, these people are trampling around the courts of the temple like the beasts who didn't know what they were there for. I mean, how graphic is Isaiah? How condemning is the Lord of his own people? They're not measuring up. Bring no more worthless offerings. There's a loathsome incense to me. You know, there are some instances that really are loathsome. Some people love them, but I can't stand them personally myself. As for convening meetings at the new month and on the Sabbath, there you have our fast and testimony meeting and the Sabbath meetings. Wickedness with the solemn gathering I cannot approve. So you come, but you haven't repented. There's still uncleanness in you. So you're polluting the whole meeting by your presence. Your monthly and regular meeting and my soul detests. They become a burden on me. I'm weary of putting up with them. When you spread forth your hands, I will conceal my, my eyes from you. Though you pray at length, I will not hear. Your hands are filled with blood. So spreading forth the hands, as we see in the book of Abraham, when you set the image upright, you see Abraham standing in the proper attitude of prayer and praying at length, not just saying your cursory, quick prayer, start the day and move on. Praying at length is acceptable of the Lord. But hands being filled with blood, what does that symbolize? Is it literal blood? Yes. So it's firstly literal, but also it represents all kinds of injustices, as Isaiah explains in this chapter. Wash yourselves clean. Remove your wicked deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. There you have a parallel, an antithetical parallel of doing good and doing evil. But good and evil in prophetic language is keeping covenant or breaking the terms of the covenant. Keeping the terms of the covenant, God's law and commandments, which are the terms of the covenant, 
or breaking them, which epitomizes evil. These terms, good and evil, also exemplify covenant blessings and covenant curses that follow, that are a consequence of choosing good or evil. Demand justice. How does he define justice? Right here. Stand up for the oppressed. Go out of your way to stand up for them. Plead the cause of the fatherless. Well, who thinks of them? Appeal on behalf of the widow. Well, I do my home teaching, da, da, da. Yeah, but he's asking you to be more than that, as we discussed last time, to be valiant in the testimony of Jesus, to go more than what you're currently doing. So there, in a nutshell, you have what he considers evil and what he considers good. Verse 18, Come now, let's put it to the test, says Jehovah. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be made white as snow. Though they have rendered as crimson, they may become white as wool. Well, not always. Because if you, if you have committed murder, you may be a perdition type. Because that's what perdition types do. So, another way, since Hebrew does not have question marks or punctuation, it could be saying, come now, let's put it to the test. Though your sins are as scarlet, can they be made white as snow? Though they have red as crimson, may they become white as wool? Really? You think so? Are you going through some kind of facade of repentance and you guilty of all these things? You're kidding yourself, right? That's another way to look at it. If you're willing and obey, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you're unwilling and disobey, you shall be eaten by the sword. That's a nice little play on words, isn't it? By his mouth, Jehovah has spoken it, or decreed it. Blessings on the one hand, curses on the other. When? Coming right up as we approach the second coming of our Lord and Savior and the millennial age. Continuing. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She was filled with justice. Righteousness made its abode in her, but now murderous. So she started off pretty good. Times of the pioneers. Now what's happening? Gangs. Well, every city you know, has this, but it's even here in our own church headquarters. Your silver has become dross. Your wine diluted with water. Your rulers are renegades, accomplices of robbers. With one accord, they love bribes and run after rewards. They do not dispense justice to the fatherless, nor does the widow's case come before them. So you have both the political and the spiritual always seem to be on a par in Israel. You'll see that all the way through Isaiah. Therefore the Lord Jehovah of hosts, the family one of Israel, declares, Woe to them, a covenant curse. I will relieve me of my adversaries, avenge me of my enemies. Of course, the enemies and adversaries are those of his own people. And now he takes issue with them and becomes their enemy. Isaiah 13. And Babylon... Now what happens in Isaiah, as we explained before, is that there are basically two categories, Zion and Babylon, that are archetypes in Isaiah, within Isaiah's literary structures, and in his typologies, and in his rhetoric. The whole book of Isaiah is an interconnected web of linking ideas. So, in the end time, when God's own people apostatize, as Isaiah predicts, which we just read, well, we didn't read the first few verses, but they clearly stated, of chapter 1, they actually become part of this Babylon conglomerate, this Babylon, they come under a Babylon umbrella. And they become part of the Church of the Devil. And the Church of the Lamb in the Book of Mormon, for example, and the Church of the Devil, they only come into being after the Great Division happens. You can't say at this point that we are the Church of the Lamb because it's talking about sanctified ones, the saints or sanctified ones upon whom the power of God comes. And that's the elect of God. That's not just members of the Church. And Babylon, the most splendid of kingdoms, in other words, the worldly kingdoms, the culture of today's world, everything that worldly, everything that is not the elect of Zion, in Isaiah, the glory and pride of Chaldeans, 
the inhabitants, shall be thrown down as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we just saw that in relation to God's apostate people. They become part of the same Sodom and Gomorrah worldwide destruction. This time it's worldwide. Never shall it be re-inhabited, those places that are hit by the nuclear bombs, no doubt. Nor shall it be resettled through all generations. Nomads will not pitch their tents there, nor will shepherds rest their flocks in it. At the end of the book of Isaiah, you see that those places are a memorial for the wickedness that once existed on the earth all through the millennial time so that people can see the contrast and take warning that they don't follow that pattern again. But wild animals will infest it and its buildings overflow with weasels. Birds of prey will find lodging there and demonic creatures prance about in it. Jackals will cry out from its palaces, howling creatures from its amusement halls. Well, you see, you know, this is an allegory of the people who are inhabiting those palaces in Las Vegas now and other places like it. Weasels, birds of prey. Isaiah resorts to creatures, something less than human, who inhabit them. We talked about that as people go through the decreation process. And he starts calling them dogs and these animals here. Jackals and howling creatures. Do we have howling creatures down in those halls of Las Vegas? Her time draws near. Babylon's day shall not be prolonged. Isaiah 33. I'm only pointing to Las Vegas as just a sample, of course. This is happening all around the world, the same kind of thing. That's why he says, Whole nations have been burned like lime, mown down like thorns and set ablaze. There's more imagery. The people have just, are just thorns. They're not wheat bringing forth good fruit. They're just, they become thorns and thistles to be cast into the fire. Chapter 9. Wickedness shall be set ablaze like a fire, and briars and thorns shall it consume. It shall ignite the jungle forests, and they shall billow upward in mushroom clouds of smoke. At the wrath of the Lord of Jehovah of hosts, the earth is scorched, and people are but fuel for the fire. They become fuel, they're decreated, they're, they're reduced to chaos, to, to ashes, to the chaos motif. Smoke is a chaos motif. And forest is elsewhere in the synonymous parallel with cities in Isaiah. And so you see that this is a, a metaphor for cities. Cities will billow upward in mushroom clouds of smoke. Forests of people. The trees are people in Isaiah. Isaiah 34. Now this is talking about Edom. And Edom is another name for Esau, or the descendants of Esau. And Esau is used as a type of those, or Edom is, those who sold their birthright from Mesopotamia. God's people in the end time who sell their birthright, their spiritual birthright, us, our covenant blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for a mess of pottage, for the flesh pots of Babylon. So Edom is a type for those who apostatize in the end time. Her stream shall turn into lava, her earth into brimstone, her land shall become as burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall ascend forever. It shall remain a wasteland from generation to generation, through endless ages, none shall traverse it. Pretty graphic. Okay, let's start up again. This is from a book that has not been published yet, but I know the uh, visionary and had a number of near-death experiences or, or visions. I was above the Pacific Ocean and saw 13 missiles from the West hit the United States. They were launched by Russia, which they said was an accident. On another occasion, we were on the West Coast with thousands of Americans just north of the Washington border, and we were celebrating the unification of Russia and U.S. militaries. We were going to see a naval and air force show, and when I was looking toward the north, I could see Alaska, and I saw the capital of Alaska and the Soviet flag 
flying above the U.S. flag. I had a feeling of warning come over me to depart immediately, and when I ran up, ran up the stairs from the beach to the parking lot, I turned around to listen and could hear at a great distance that something greater was coming than what we were told. I turned and saw 20 to 30 people who received the same warning by the Spirit to depart, and we united and ran across the street and up a canyon. And when we arrived at a meadow, the ground dropped about two feet from under our feet, and we heard a loud concussion, followed by a loud explosion. So the concussion came first, and then the sound. We turned around and saw mushroom clouds, so we stopped running, thinking it was pointless, as the effects of the nuclear explosion was upon us. But we saw that the ground all around us and the air above us was not affected. I looked back at the south side of the canyon. On the peaks were two angels standing with their arms to the square, and we knew we were being preserved by God. And this is visions of glory. This first part of our journey was without worry, except that the Lord sent us around one area that had been hit by a nuclear weapon. This explosion had not occurred because of aerial strike, but by sabotage of a nuclear weapon stored underground at that place. I believe that many of the nuclear explosions across the country were a result of sabotage rather than a missile attack. A few days after we crossed into Idaho, we left all highways and went cross-country. Idaho had been rocked by several atomic weapons, all at military installations, probably also due to sabotage. Isaiah 33 Take heed what I have done, you who are far off, you who are near, be apprised of my might. Speaking to the Lord's people, there are those afar off and those near. So in two places we have Jerusalem and then we have this country where the new Jerusalem will be. So we have some over here and some over there. And we also have God's people who have gathered and then those people who are scattered around different congregations around the earth, around the world. The sinners in Zion are struck with fear. You see, we cannot say that this is somebody else. He keeps reiterating that. Read Second Nephi 28, uh, those in Zion who apostatize and trust in the precepts of men and the end deny Christ and come into seven woes or seven curses. You've read it in class. The sinners in Zion are struck with fear. The godless are in the grip of trembling. Godless in Zion? Yes. Who among us can live through the devouring fire? Who among us can abide eternal burning? They who conduct themselves righteously and are honest in word, who disdain extortion and stay their hands from taking bribes, because that's what you're doing now. You're into extortion and bribes, taking grafts. We stop their ears at the mention of murder. Well, we watch movies about murders. We shut their eyes at the sight of wickedness. Well, we revel in seeing those images, even if you're not directly involved in it. They shall dwell on high. The impregnable cliffs are their fortress. Bread is provided them. Their water is sure. As it was for Israel in the wilderness under Moses, he provided water for them. The cliffs indicate the mountains again where the angels took Lot. They deposited Lot in the mountains. Well, they asked him to flee to the mountains. Your eyes shall behold the king in his glory and view the expanse of the earth. Because when you are taken out, you become this sanctified people, then it will be an experience for you that will take you through certain spiritual phases and steps where ultimately you can make sure you're calling election and the Lord will appear to you. Isaiah 48, go forth out of Babylon, flee from Chaldea, make this announcement with resounding voice. Who does that? In Isaiah, it's the servant who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. A Latter-day John the Baptist, as I've mentioned, also a Latter-day Enoch who establishes the Zion to which the Lord can then come. 
because Zion is not being prepared today. It's not being formed today. It's going to be formed by a Latter-day Enoch. In Isaiah, that's the servant. In Revelation, it's the angel from the east who is the servant who comes from the east in the book of Isaiah, as we mentioned previously. He's the new Moses that leads the Exodus out of all the earth and of the saints back to Jackson County, as it says in DNC 103, verses 15 through 20, led by one likened to Moses back to Jackson County. Broadcasted to the end of the earth because the Exodus is coming from the end of the earth. Say, Jehovah has redeemed his servant Jacob. They thirsted not when he led them through arid places. He caused water to flow for them from the rock. He cleaved the rock and the water gushed out. And when Moses smote the rock, it was symbolic of Christ being smitten so that he could be the waters of life through the atonement that he wrought for humanity. It's beautiful imagery, isn't it? But there is no peace, says Jehovah, for the wicked. So in contrast to those who go in the Exodus, the new Exodus from around all the world where Babylon exists, everything that is not Zion, for them there is no peace, but for them who come, there is peace. You can read it backwards. 57.1. The righteous disappear. Think of Lot. And no man gives it a thought. The godly are gathered out by the angels, by the translated beings. But no one perceives that from impending calamity the righteous are withdrawn. So those who remain behind don't even give a hoot. Don't think about it. They're here one day, gone the next. Where'd they go? Oh, they probably went on vacation or something, you know. They who walk uprightly shall attain peace and rest in their beds. And that is the last one. Okay, so we have about, we're going to have a treat tonight. The first Isaiah vignette that Mike and Nancy James have done. And we'll have a second one next week that they've also completed. So we'll have about 10 minutes for questions now. And after that, we'll show this video to you. Oh, okay. You're asking, good question. What am I quoting from when I'm quoting scriptures from the Old Testament or New Testament? Yeah, it's, it's my rendition of them. I just didn't, no, I don't have, I just do it for this class. Um, just improve the understanding of it a bit. It's, it's all literal, it's all what the Hebrew says, but it just rephrases it a little better than the King James does. Because the King James is 1611. How many centuries is that now? Elizabethan English, practically? Okay, there was a question here, sir. Yes. Your question is, did Isaiah see the last hundred years, including the World Trade Center coming down, JFK's assassination, what else? Or anything that's happened now? The Great Depression? Yeah. Yeah, when you have people who see the end from the beginning, like Moses, he saw every creature, and Spencer, too, you just have to give it your attention, and you see every detail of it. And so... As in Spencer's case, some things were taken from his memory because the Lord does not want to reveal them at the present time. And some things were too sacred for him to mention. And with Isaiah, I'm certain that he saw our day and all the events leading up to it. I think the example is Nephi's vision where he sees his descendants and what happens to them and all the way through to the end time and what would happen to the Lamanites of the end time so I think those kind of visions, cosmic visions, a vision of the end from the beginning that Isaiah talks about, because of the vision of all, that's what the King James translates it as, it's a cosmic vision. It's a comprehensive vision. So yes, 
all the indications are that Isaiah saw all those things and has seen our day in many, many details. But he doesn't, you know, like Book of Mormon visionaries, they, they only mention those things that are important, that, that typify the essentials of the scenario. We can put the pieces together, even these essentials we don't understand. So, yeah, they don't spell it all out because the Lord leaves it to us to figure things out. And it's part of worshiping God with our minds, as I mentioned previously. Yes, why the brother of Jared is a Gentile who came into the Lord's presence and why we are likened or invited to become like brothers of Jared in Ether 3, Ether 4, 4, yeah, which we read. Why? Well, I think there the Lord planted this great type for us who are Gentiles because we could say, as in chapter 56, concerning the Gentiles or concerning foreigners, well, he only cares for the house of Israel. Why would he care for me? And Lord says, no, he's no respecter of persons. He's, he embraces all of humanity. All those who come into the covenant with Israel are his people. And we can attain those very things that the house of Israel attains. They don't have a corner on God's mercies and God's plan of salvation and exaltation. They don't. It's possible that, that Gentiles as a whole may be spiritually further behind the house of Israel. Because we've discussed that, how Paul speaks of the house of Israel, the Jews, citing the Jews, as his people whom he foreknew. He knew them previously, and knowing is to know personally, as he knew the wise virgins and did not know the foolish virgins. So it's not a question of race, really. Anyway, besides that, members of the church are by and large the sense of Ephraim who have come through the Gentile lineages. But by definition, we are called Gentiles in the Book of Mormon, as we all know. We're never called House of Israel. Not until the, after the Great Division that we're numbered among them. That's in my book, The Last Days, where I analyze all of those definitions in the Book of Mormon. I'm not sure that I fully answered your question, though. You were hinting at something else, weren't you? And what was that? I referenced the Brother Jared as a Gentile. Yes, I did. I made the connection there. Well, you know, gives you hope, right? Um, well, you know, I kind of broke my own rule because I, my policy is if you can't show it, don't say it. But in a way, you can say it because he was not the house of Israel. And so what was he then? Well, the equivalent of a Gentile today. So, yeah. I think that the Lord arranged that for us to draw an, an analogy from for ourselves. So we shouldn't demean ourselves and look down upon ourselves. We are just as capable. And remember, there are sacred lineages among the Gentiles. There are sacred lineages among the Gentiles of those apostles and the Savior's own lineage who are not numbered among the Jews of today. They fled into Europe and became numbered, assimilated into the Gentile lineages. And the kings of Europe, by and large, trace their lineage to those sacred lineages. So, so we're not entirely pure heathen. Or, you know, we have Israelite lineages in us. But as it says of Ephraim, he's a half-baked pancake in, in um, Hosea chapter uh, 7, verse 8, because he's assimilated among the nations. And so the challenge is to overcome that Gentile part of us and to rise above it and to fulfill our birthright role as Ephraimites and become saviors to the house of Israel as Joseph, our ancestor, was. So the promises to the Gentiles are great, great. There's none like them in the Book of Mormon or 
period. So, nothing to be ashamed of when we fulfill our roles. But there is if we don't. Because then, if we're not savers, we'll be as salt as lots of savers. And those, as members of the church, are the two choices we have. There is no other. The Jubilee year is the 50th year, and that's when all uh, debts are released. Lands revert back to their original owners, how they used to, but I don't think that lasted very long. Men, the people were too covetous. The sabbatical year is the seventh year. I think that also happens in the seventh year, does it not? Yeah. Um, it, it's almost like a double Sabbath. And the Jubilee year, no doubt, is a confluence of things spiritual that if people really lived it, the very experience of it would manifest to them what it means to the Lord. But I think if we can do it, like the Jews say, if we could, just, if we could all live the Sabbath just once, the Messiah would come. But we don't do it, so we kind of speculate about it. The seventh year of the land was left fallow. Yes. Yeah, and, and for, the, for the Jubilee year, you leave it fallow for two years, as I understand. So that the sixth year would, yeah, would be three times the harvest. And if God says it, then it's true, right? So why aren't we putting it to the test? Because our whole culture has just got the better of us. And there's nothing just one of us can do about it, right? You know what the Jews do? They're very clever. How they get around the law? They sell the land to a Gentile for a penny or something. And they buy it back after it's over, after the Sabbath or after the Sabbath year. I mean, I could say something about that, but I'll just tell you that that's what they do. So, so next fall? Apparently, yes. Owners. You're making the connection that, that this Jubilee year, the land could revert back to its owners, its rightful heirs. You know, we shall see, right? Mm-hmm. We shall see. Yes, sir. Well, Jehovah, yes. But, but he's the Holy One of Israel who is in the flesh is Christ, Jesus Christ, yes. Yes, well, I don't think... Genesis says that. He ate. If he was a spirit, he wouldn't be eating, right? If he was purely a spirit, he would not be eating. Right? <laughs> so he ate in Abraham's tent. They made a little feast for him, for the three angels. So they had bodies. So what does that tell you? I think probably... Maybe that one of our precepts and men have got in the way there, and we have to figure out what that is and learn more about it. At least. Yes. Yeshayahu. Uh, what's the name of Isaiah mean? Thank you for reminding me. Uh, Yesha is the Lord, or is will save. Yahu is an abbreviation for Jehovah. Yeshayah, or Yeshayahu, is Jehovah will save. So it's a name similar to. Jesus' own name, which is the noun, salvation, or Joshua, which, which says uh, Jehovah will save. Jo- Joshua is a verb. Uh, Jesus' name is Yeshua, the noun. Some people confuse the two out of ignorance. Well, I would just commend them on what they're doing. That's all I would say. I can't, I can't hold myself up as an example, but 
I, I would concur with that. Yes, totally. Yes. That, and do you need me to repeat that? He's stocking up on food storage and living the gospel to the best he can. Well, we've discussed the things you can do spiritually, which is the preparation, what it means to become a proxy savior, because that's what it's going to be all about. We need to become King Hezekiah, so we need to learn the story of King Hezekiah and how what he went through, through his descent phase, and we need to emulate Christ in that respect and be willing to suffer with him, as Paul says, so that we might be effectual in bringing deliverance to those to whom we minister, whether it be our own families, our wards, for which we have, in which we have leadership positions or stakes or whatever it may be. We have those roles, and if we knew what they were from the Book of Mormon, heroes in the Book of Mormon, as there are examples of those things, then we might be more serious about um, covenanting with the Lord and fulfilling our covenants with Him. And uh, as I've mentioned before, making deals with Him. It's really important that you enter more into relationship with your Savior than, than you've ever done before, in these days now. This concludes Lecture 11, and End Time Sodom and Gomorrah. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Kiliati.